WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint, where power and politics collide and the tough questions get asked and answered. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. Last week, state house lawmakers voted 72 to 41 to give final approval to their $25.7 billion budget plan. Nine Democrats joined all the Republicans present to vote for the plan. Democrats who didn't vote for the budget blasted its failure to include Medicaid expansion and underfunding education, among other things. The Republican-controlled Senate approved its own $25.5 billion plan in June. House and Senate Republican leaders now working out a compromise deal. The final thing, of course, still needs the governor's approval. Joining us today on Flashpoint, State Representative Dean Arper, Republican from Union County, and Democrat Wesley Harris of Mecklenburg County. Gentlemen, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Great to be here. All right, before Thank you, Spencer. We, before we uh, take a deep dive into uh, the details of this budget, we haven't had a, a, a full, regularly like operational budget in, in several years. And if there's one thing we talk about most here on Flashpoint, it's effective governance, whether it's Republican, Democrat, big, small, large government, small government. We want effective government. Why have we not been able to pass a budget? Instead, we have these little mini, mini budgets um, for several years. Uh, I'll start with you, Representative Arp. Well, I mean, simply the governor vetoed the budgets put forward. We weren't able to compromise. There was a Lipman test about uh, certain things in the budget, certain things not in the budget, not, not enough spending, things like that. So what we did was we deflected to, to your point, effective government uh, and uh, passed the things in the budget that were not controversial, not in dispute. And that actually actually did approve about 90% of the actual spending in the budget. We have a continuing resolution. We're not like Washington where we can have deficit spending, but we also have a continuing resolution that provides funding government to go forward. Um, it is a failure uh, and uh, one that we hope to not repeat this year. We worked hard uh, to have a really good budget this year and, uh, and I'm hopeful that we won't repeat that failure. Uh, Representative Harris, are, are you as optimistic about uh, this year's uh, proposal? I'm, I'm tentatively op optimistic. As Representative Arp said, it, it has been a failure the, the past couple of years. And, you know, it comes down, we are a 50-50 state. We have a Democratic governor and we have a Republican legislature. And so at the end of the day, we know we're going to have to come together and agree on something. Um, and... That, that involves both sides, it involves both sides giving and both sides both sides taking. And we simply have not had that in the last couple of years. And, you know, after the, after the 2018 election, when we broke the supermajority, we had a lot of optimism that we would get some bipartisanship, uh, but both sides really dug in their heels and, and set, the, set the stage for 2020. And lo and behold, what do we end up with? We end up with a Democratic governor and a Republican General Assembly. And so um, there wasn't a partisan, there wasn't an electoral backlash for us not getting a budget. And so the fact that we're all still here, uh, still the same, same divisions, I, I'm more hopeful that, that we will get together and actually get a budget this year. All right, Dean, I've talked to me. I mean, Republicans seem to feel pretty good um, uh, about this budget that you guys have agreed upon uh, in the House. And, and you got, I mean, you can honestly say it's bipartisan. You didn't get one or two Democrats. You, you actually got like nine of them, which, which is notable in today's political climate. Um, why do you feel so good about it? Well, it's the largest budget in the state's history. I mean, this budget is transformative uh, and fully funds the 
the vision for a good North Carolina for all citizens. Uh, it is uh, historic in terms of the amount of spending, uh, largest largest budget ever. Uh, puts more into education, more into capital, more into uh, our mental health needs uh, across the state. I mean, I mean, it just it's the largest budget uh, in in the history of North Carolina. No, uh, so the, the, there's a lot of things to uh, you know if if if, if the perfect is the enemy of the good. And so, you know, uh, while we disagree on many things, um, you know, we, we just believe that this is a uh, uh, the right time, the right numbers in the budget uh, for uh, where we are today and always striving for a better budget tomorrow, too. Uh, you know, this is not a one and done thing. I mean, we've got the next biennium. In fact, we're looking toward the next decade in terms of how we structure the economic growth of North Carolina to sustain investments uh, for, uh, you know, tomorrow's needs. All right, Wesley That's Harris, uh, let me bring in uh, Representative Harris. The, the, the way you hear your colleagues say from Union County, I mean, this sounds like a pretty good deal, the biggest budget ever. I mean, we covered a lot of ground, um, but I know you disagree. Uh, yes, I, I, I vehemently but respectfully disagree with that. Uh, you know, we, we have a great opportunity in North Carolina this year. We had a lot of federal aid come in. Our tax revenues really weren't hit by the pandemic. And so we have, you know, as representatives are, have, we have an opportunity to have a transformational budget. But I, I'm afraid this simply does not do it. You know, th this is a situation where we have so much money that we can actually fulfill all the needs, all the all the priorities that we have of both parties and really be pleased but how the process has worked out it has been one-sided again we, we got the first look at the budget 600 pages last monday uh monday night and we were voting on it on the floor on wednesday and so you know aside from spending the money which is good we you know there are a lot more priorities i wish we would have focused on we're also having over eight billion dollars in tax cuts again a lot of that going to corporate tax cuts and there are a lot of policy provisions in this budget that are going to take powers away from the governor, powers that have undoubtedly saved lives in the last year, powers away from the attorney general that ultimately helped secure our election last year. And we're micromanaging how teachers are going to teach their, their curriculum and make it so they have to broadcast what their curriculum is on for public comment for everyone to see before they can even enter the classroom. And so while we have an opportunity in this budget, we, we simply haven't seen the, the reach out from, from the other side of the aisle to come in and actually have a conversation of what the state's needs, bring in everybody and have a budget that we can all agree on. And so that's, you know, that's, that's why I voted against it. That's why the vast majority of our caucus voted against it. And I, and I hope that as we go towards the conference board, we can bring the governor on board and really come to a consensus. All right, you covered a lot of ground right there. I do want to talk about some of the policy proposals that are, that are uh, wedged into this uh, budget. But, but also, uh, Representative Art, we've got a state surplus uh, of 6.5 billion um, yeah. plus billions in federal COVID relief. Uh, I, I mean, if not now, then when? when it comes to some of these priorities that, that Democrats talk about? I mean, I mean, if this is not the time, then will it ever be the time? Well, I, I think we actually are doing those priorities. Those are shared priorities. We're increasing teacher raises and pays, so 7% for community colleges, 7% uh, for correctional officers, and across the board, five and a half. We're raising the, the minimum uh, uh, pay from 13 to $15 an hour for our non-instructional personnel. We're walking together in the same vision and goal. 
but but yet it's it's not enough. And you see, we've had that six billion plus dollar surplus because of good fiscal management, living within your means, and planning uh, steady growth in the in the budget. Not you know, and and I know uh, Representative Harris agrees with this that we should not pay. Uh, for uh, recurring expenses with one-time dollars and a surplus, a $6.5 billion surplus is one-time money. Uh, and so we've, we have um, separated the two, two pots of money, if you will, uh, and we spent on capital and broadband. Uh, one of my, my chief goals and one of the bills I introduced was to expand broadband across North Carolina. Uh, $1 billion worth of investment so that uh, every county can improve their broadband and consummate, uh, consequently the educational benefits of that. And so we are walking together, but we've done it with responsible uh, spending where we live within our means, uh, make sure that uh, the hard-earned money of our taxpayers stays with them and invest in the economy. That's how we've been able to sustain a historic 10-year growth in North Carolina to where we are not uh, hit uh, like other states were during the pandemic. We were ready fiscally and financially, and we come out of it very strong. Why would we change the, the method that we do when it's proved so well over the last decade? Wesley Harris, can you have it both ways? Can you say, you know what? I think we should take the money that we have now. We're in a massive surplus. We should do all these things that are, that are Democratic priorities. But you can also say, you know what? Republicans deserve some credit for that $6.5 billion we have in surplus because they've been leading the way. Uh, can you have it both ways? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to give, to give credit for that. First of all, I, I refuse to call it a surplus because you can't call it a surplus when you have unmet needs. You know, A lot of the reason we have a surplus or uh, we have all this money is because we had a lot of federal money come in. We didn't have a budget last year, so that started us out on, on the first. And, you know, you look at what other states had such good fiscal conditions coming out of the pandemic. California did. You know, these high tax states did. And it's just because, you know, we had an industry mix that didn't have us hit by the, by the pandemic. And why do we have that industry mix? RTP didn't happen in the last 10 years. Charlotte as a financial sector didn't, financial center didn't happen in the last 10 years. Those took decades of strong investments in our people. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's funny when we talk about, you know, we don't want to take all this one-time money. We want to live within our means at the same time we're cutting taxes that are preventing our ability to have these long-term sustainable investments in what's really going to grow the state. And if you look at growth rates over the past 10 years, we have grown slower than the country as a whole. We've grown slower than Tennessee. We've grown slower than Georgia. And we've grown slower than South Carolina. All of those states haven't even touched their tax rates. They're still double our tax rates in most instances. And so ju just to say these things, it's, you know, it's a complicated issue. And that's why we have to come together to get all these different mindsets in the room to talk about what's best for growing North Carolina. And so to say just one side gets the credit for all of it, it's just it, it's disingenuous. And, and the data just doesn't back it up. I want to talk about well, the things. I, I disagree that it's been a, uh, you know, uh, the surplus is easily defined. It's more money coming in than we expected in the revenue. It's just simply that. And it is simply, uh, we actually have more revenue coming into the state by reducing our taxes and letting the hard-earned people, the small businesses, most of the, most of the businesses out there are sub-S businesses that are taxed on their personal income through their small businesses through the year. And it's a recipe that has, you know, 
succeeded uh, in this and it's actually provided more revenue to the state by lowering the burden and, and raising the, the, you know, the standard deduction, the, the number of people who do not pay taxes. Um, we've been able to accomplish both. And, uh, and I just don't think uh, that we change from the very uh, objective success of North Carolina. All right, uh, Representative Arpa, we do want to ask you, though, um, Mr. Harris brought it up earlier. In this budget, you've got a lot of money going around, too, but you also have got um, teachers are going to have to be required to post all their uh, learning materials, course materials online. Uh, you're stripping the governor of some of his emergency powers. Uh, keep cities from protecting trees on private property. All these random things. And again, it goes back to the effective governance. And folks at home watching this be like, why in the world are things like that in a budget? Understanding Democrats have done this just as much as Republicans. Why are things like this in the budget? These are policy provisions that are certainly tied. Listen, the first thing we need to do is get our kids back in school. We missed during the pandemic an entire year. And uh, education is so critical. And our kids are, are, are struggling. Uh, the teachers are struggling. And they need to be in school. And, uh, and, and we are having a tough time doing that. Um, and so when, when we, as soon as we do, we're not teaching the fundamentals of reading and writing and, and the things we're, we're going off on these tangents. And, and so quite frankly, where is it stated that uh, the public education and what's being taught in the classroom is suddenly not public, uh, is not a part of, of parents' concerns and community concerns and make sure we're teaching, teaching reading and writing and math and history and science and these fundamental basics. What, what's wrong? with making public education public. There's nothing wrong with it, but a lot of folks would say it has nothing to do with the budget. Well, why? Because we fund education with the budget. Well, well I, I don't understand why that's that's a dis, you know, disconnect. Then in fairness, um, almost any issue uh, of the public nature could be in the budget. Well, it does. The budget touches across so many different areas. I mean, we go in and fund curriculum and instruction and then to hide that from the public, I mean, why, why would we do that? We say, okay, here's the curriculum, you've got to fund it. You also have to make it public. Uh, this is an outcry basically from, uh, from the parents. Have you not heard the parents and the outcry about uh, being able to understand what's in the classroom um, and, and, and what's being taught? So I, I just don't understand the disconnect with making public education public. Representative Harris, you get final word. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, public education is public. We have locally elected school boards. We have locally elected county commissions that choose our curriculum. We have trained teachers who go to school who understand and know what the best curriculum is for our kids. And again, city council doesn't have their decisions decided by popular referendum by the state. And a corporation doesn't have referendums to decide what they're thinking. They hire the people and they trust them to do their job. And our state should be doing that with our teachers too. And, you know, we have Mark Robinson covering the state screaming about indoctrination. But what's indoctrination? Is it is it qualified teachers studying and devoting their lives to teaching our students and understanding what's best for our students? Or is it a bunch of brawly bureaucrats telling our teachers what they can and cannot teach so that we don't offend our dear leaders up here? And so it's just, you know, trust, trust the process, trust our teachers, have respect. We're throwing more money at them this year. By the same time, we're just taking away their respect by imposing these micromanaging statutes on them. And 
in an area of the budget they shouldn't be in in the first place. All right, gentlemen, we're going to have to end it there. State Representatives Dean Arp, Republican of Union County, Democrat Wesley Harris of Mecklenburg County. Gentlemen, thank you for the civil discussion. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Representative Harris. Thank you. Thank you. All right, more flash right after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. According to some estimates, the price of the war in Afghanistan has been more than $2 trillion. But something you certainly can't put a price tag on, all the lives that were lost. Local veterans of the war now left to wonder if the price was really worth it. WCNC Charles Indira Esquiva has their story. The veterans I spoke with told me that they went to Afghanistan to save lives. More than 2,400 American service members died in that conflict, and the ones who survived are disheartened by what's happening now. Matthew Flores turned 21 in Afghanistan. A car the U.S. Marine veteran was in while on a special mission was ambushed in 2011, injuring Flores and earning him a Purple Heart. Damaged my back, uh, my spine, um, my neck, and my head, and then, you know, the, the trauma of PTSD. Flores was lucky to have survived. He's now on medical retirement, but his time in Afghanistan still haunts him. With images of Kabul's takeover pouring in, he wonders if the sacrifice was worth it. Some, some of us no longer have some of our friends here with us because we fought for what we, be, we believed that we were liberating this country. And now just seeing it collapse right back into where it was, it's it's disheartening. It's sad. Another veteran, Van Stitt, served with the 1st Medical Battalion in Afghanistan in 2010. He worked in a tent hospital and saw the injuries firsthand. We did see people coming with arms, legs missing, gunshots, some massive, you know, explosion injuries. Both men told me they wanted to save lives. Many others lost their lives for that same purpose. This was not the finale they were fighting for. With everything happening right now, it's exactly as bad, if not worse, than before we started. I asked Matthew Flores if the United States were to stay in Afghanistan longer, would it have made a difference? He told me no, because he believes that from the get-go in this conflict, there was not enough unity between the Americans and the Afghans. Indira Esquiva, WCNC Charlotte. A final word about our Afghanistan veterans coming up on the other side of this break. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Before we leave, I want to share a post I put on Facebook. It says, I want to give a heartfelt thank you to all of our Afghanistan veterans. After 9-11, you bravely answered the call of service and fought in America's longest war. Your country remains indebted to you and your family for your sacrifice, no matter the politics of recent weeks. Come interact with me on my Twitter, Instagram, Facebook pages, you name it, we're there. If there's something you want us to talk about on Flashpoint, let us know. And a reminder, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Yes, we have a podcast, folks. You can find it wherever you listen to your podcast. I'll see you back here next.